The scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles there, open to Revelation 3. Appreciate Wayne reading that text for us, and uh, this is going to be what kind of frame our our sermon this morning. Uh, We're going through the seven letters, going through the seven churches. Uh, There are these these letters from Jesus to the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. And um, this has been a, a, a fruitful study for me. I hope it's been helpful to everyone else. But it's been, it's been good for me to, to go through these churches and see the similarities and differences. One of the things that you might be noticing is that uh, Jesus' uh, the intensity of how he's re- re- you know, writing to these, these people is starting to dial up a little bit. Um, and we saw it starting in Ephesus and uh, how that he had somewhat some one thing against them. And then over time, there, there's been one church so far that hasn't had any uh, negative things said about them. We got one more next week in Philadelphia. Uh, but then we're going to culminate with Laodicea and how that there's some strong words. But here in Sardis, to, to the to church of Sardis, there's some pretty strong, strong uh, words given here. And um, I'm looking forward to, to looking at this with you this morning here. You know, we've all read books or watched movies where the hero dies uh, unexpectedly. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the, uh, the stories about Sherlock Holmes, uh, he kind of got tired of writing about Holmes, and, and these stories first appeared in the Strand magazine, and he was writing, and there was a great big following of all of these stories, and after, after a while, he, he, he kind of got tired of writing about it, and so uh, he had uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes die in a story. Uh, there was one where a Professor Moriarty, his arch nemesis, they're locked arms. They fall over to the, the waterfalls, the cliffs there, and they died. Um, and the, the public was just outraged, just, just absolutely outraged about this. Uh, or who could forget in The Princess Bride when Wesley has all his life sucked out of him in the pit of despair or whatever it is, right? You know, in both those cases, the audience, they see their hero go from life and vitality to death. Now, Sardis is kind of like that here in that the sense that uh, their reputation, as we saw, it says that 
The reputation was of being alive and, and vital, but the reality was the opposite. Jesus, he, he's very clear and says, but you are dead in verse uh, 1 there of chapter 3. Um, so let me give you some background of the church of Sardis as, as we do this. And so I'll show you a map here. Uh, first of all, you've, I've seen this before. Here's Patmos where John is writing. We've gone through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now we're down in Sardis here. And we've only got two more churches left. Let me tell you a little bit about this. As I do, there's going to be a, uh, I, I came across a, a video of some archaeology and excavation that's happening in this site here. And so there's some drone footage and stuff. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the city and that's going to play uh, on there as you're, you're watching. This kind of tells you what this looks like uh, in modern day today. But Sardis was one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world in the 6th century B.C. And so 600 years or so before, 700 years before, when John is writing this letter, or he's recording Jesus' letter here, uh, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world. It was here at Sardis that gold and silver coins were first minted and used, okay? So we have the first gold and silver coins there. Um, and this really comes from uh, the King Midas legend, you know, and there actually was a king, his name wasn't Midas, but there was a king and they, and they, they made this legend that, uh, you remember the, the, the legend of King Midas, that everything he touched would become gold. And uh, at first he really liked this, but then as soon as uh, he, he started touching people and things like that, he started realizing maybe this is not a great uh, a gift to have. And so in order to get rid of this is that he was told to go wash into a river and uh, then uh, that would be taken away from him. So he did. Now the river that he was told, according to the legend, to wash in, it ran right through Sardis, okay? And this river, there was quite a bit of gold found there. These were where these first gold coins were at. So this kind of led to the legend of King Midas around there. So I just tell you that to say this is, this is right in the city of Sardis here. Um, it was also claimed, they also claimed, to be the first to discover the art of dyeing wool. Um, this was the, uh, uh, something that they could do there, so the clothing and things like that was really important here. Um, and so you can see in all the things that you see in the videos there just how uh, impressive the city really was. It had several temples. You saw some ruins of that earlier. Uh, that temple was never uh, completed because it, by the Roman period, and uh, it, it had declined in its power. Sardis had declined in its power. Uh, and in, it really, one of the, th the difficult things was in AD 17, there was this earthquake that, that took place and it devastated the, the city. And then they started to rebuild it. And the emperor, Tiberius, he was pretty generous. He said, okay, we won't tax you for five years. He's going to give them some money and things like that to, to rebuild. And so they did. But it was never really completed to its former glory. And some of the buildings weren't complete. Like, the, the, that temple, the, the Artemis temple that you saw ruins of, that was never actually completed in its restoration. Another interesting thing to find out about uh, this city of Sardis is that there was a Jewish synagogue that was found there and that they've excavated it. You may have saw a picture or two of that in there. I'm not sure if it was in there or not. But um, some of the interesting things about this is that it, the names of the people that were written there in the, in the columns in this Jewish temple, they were written in Greek and not Hebrew. Now, that would have been interesting because for the, the, the Hebrew people, names are very important. 
But the fact that they wrote them in Greek says that they were really assimilated into the culture of the day. There was also a Roman eagle on the altar and Roman animals representing loyalty to the Roman Empire all the way found in the synagogues. Reliefs were found of pagan culture in the synagogues about the deity of the, the culture in the Jewish synagogue there. Next to the synagogue, the synagogue was built next to the Roman gymnasium where things went on there that would have been deeply offensive to the Jewish faith. And so it seems like, the reason why I'm pointing all this out is that it seems that Sardis was a place that wanted to make peace with all the religions and all the culture around them. So there was lots of religious activity, but there was no real life. And this was in a population of about 60 to 100,000 people here. And so it seems that the church of Sardis was like the city where it resided. It was re- relying on former days of glory. It was living in incomplete temples. It was embracing pluralism. In fact, it just didn't look good for them. And so this is why Jesus writes them and says, listen, you have reputation. This was a, a city that one time was booming. This, and you, you're kind of riding on that reputation, but it's no longer that way. And he says to the city of the church of Sardis, he says, you have this reputation, but there's no life there. You're really, really dead. Now, the good thing is, I mean, it's, it's bad. I mean, that's really bad. But the good news is, is that Jesus Christ is a God who deals with resurrection, has resurrection power, right? So you remember I told you about uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, the outcry that happened. Well, what happened was is that Conan Doyle got so many letters. He got so many uh, uh, letters uh, saying, hey, you cannot kill off Holmes. And so he picked his pen up and wrote The Return of Sherlock Holmes. See, when you're an author, you can just bring a guy back to life, right? Okay. All right? Same thing with Wesley in Princess Bride, right? He wasn't dead. He was mostly dead, right? Okay? Okay? And so, so you, you can just bring these people back to life. Now, we laugh at that, and, and we've all experienced that. We think our hero is dying, and it's like, oh, no, where are they going to go with this? And then he really didn't die yet, and so or she didn't die yet, and so we're so happy about this. You know, as bad as it looks here, the fact that Jesus is warning them, says there's still time, okay? The fact that there is a repentance plan there shows that there is time. And so here's what I want to unpack, and I think it's going to be wrong. Yeah, I, I changed this wording here uh, because of a couple reasons. So really what it should say is Jesus has a solution for even the worst circumstances. So if you want to write recovery plan, you can, but that was 1.0. 2.0 sermon is solution, okay? Um, and uh, because I thought it fit better with the outline. So Jesus has a solution for even the worst circumstances. And so where do we see this in the text? Well, uh, we're going to unpack this in four ways. Uh, First of all, the first solution, the first part of Jesus' solution is to accept his authority, okay? Accept his authority. Let me just pause, though, and just ask God to to bless our sermon, though, as, uh, as I dive into the main part of this sermon. Father, I want to pause now and ask for your spirit to guide me as I teach. And Lord, we are grateful that you do have a solution for even the worst of circumstances. And as we look at what this is and how Jesus talks to the church of Sardis, I pray that it's instructive to us. And I pray that I would communicate in a way that is accurate to the text, that is helpful, and above all, led by your Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. 
So first of all, if we're going to follow Jesus' solution, we're going to see what it is. The first of all is we have to accept Jesus' authority here. We were reminded of Jesus' authority last week in chapter 2 and verse 27 when he says, he, he's talking about, he says, uh, one of the eternal benefits that he will give to believers. And he says that I will give authority over nations, okay? And so if he has authority to give, then he has it. Verse 27 says, even as I myself have received authority from my Father here. And so we see this theme that's already begun in the last letter, but we also see it picked up here in Sardis here of how that he has authority. Now, how do I see this? Well, there's a couple of things in verse one there that you might have said, what is that about? First of all, it says, the words to him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars. What is that about there? Well, the seven stars, we'll start there first. Uh, we've already known what that's about in verse 20 of chapter one. It says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so these are either, and we talked about what are the angels that he's referring to there. Uh, the two most common beliefs are either the messengers of the people who actually carried the letters or pastors of these churches, the spiritual leaders of these churches. Um, Honestly, either one would be, in my opinion, it could be either one equally. And so that's who he's talking about here. So he says that he has the authority over them. He's, these are the ones who he has them, okay? So, so he has authority over these messengers or pastors of these churches. Now, the seven spirits of God, that causes a little bit more uh, question marks. It's like, so what is that talking about when it talks about how that there's seven spirits of God? I mean, we're, we're not polytheists, meaning there's many gods. And so what is this talking about here? It, it, simply put, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The seven there is the idea of completion. It talks about how he's, just, he's a completed God. It also has a result of probably is uh, uh, there are some things that were given earlier in chapter one about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. But either way, what he's referring to is he's saying that he has authority even over the Holy Spirit, okay? And we know that the Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit's job is for uh, him to draw men to the Father through the work of the, the, the Son. And so what he's saying here is he's saying the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he's basically saying, I've got a, some really bad news for you. He's about ready to tell them, give them the diagnosis that they're dead. And what he says is how he describes himself. He says, but I have the power of the spirit, the spirit to breathe life into, and I have the power over the spiritual leadership of the church. So even if the spiritual leaders are bad, even if the spiritual leaders are the ones who are dead, he says, I have the authority over the church. This is one of the reasons why we continually say here is that this is Jesus' church here, okay? And so the spiritual leaders that are in place here, we're trying to serve Jesus, and we're serving under his headship in this church. And so when we put these two things together, it means that Jesus' authority is based on him being God. He has authority over the Holy Spirit, right? But he also is man, and he has authority over mankind. So only Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And so we see this referenced here in chapter 3, verse 1. And it is all under this idea of, you can trust me. I have authority over the spiritual realm. I have authority over the human realm. You can trust me here here is my authority. So if we're going to follow Jesus' solution, the first thing we need to do is accept Jesus' authority. Now, you see in your outline, if you have an outline, I have four points. The longest section is going to be number two here. So if I keep talking about number two for a while and you're looking at your watch, don't panic, okay? All right? We're going to spend most of our time in number two and then finish it up quickly with three and four. Here's number two. Follow Jesus' plan. 
okay? So if we're going to accept the solution, if we're going to see Jesus has a solution for even the worst of circumstances, hey, you're dead. You think you're alive, but you're dead. That's pretty bad. He says, here's what you need to do. First, we saw we have to accept Jesus' authority. Secondly, there's a plan here. And what does he talk about here? Well, first of all, in verse 2, he says, wake up, right? He gives five uh, uh, words here over the next couple of verses. They have the force of commands. And he says, I want you to wake up, first of all. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, on one level, it's pretty self-explanatory, is the idea of regaining consciousness, um, being aware of the reality of the situation. When you and I are sleeping, we, we don't know what's going on around us, right? When we're sleeping, uh, we're oblivious to the world. We're oblivious to everything that's happening. And, uh, and so he said, you got to wake up. You, 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 you got to be aware of what's going on around you. I think that if we were to put a common phrase, a modern day phrase on this, is he's saying this is nominal Christianity, okay? Now, what is nominal Christianity? Nominal Christianity is Christianity in name only, okay? Where they claim the name of Christ, or they, they claim to follow Christ, but when you look at the decisions that they're making, you look at the, how they're ordering their lives, it says, well, wait a minute here, this isn't following Christ. He's not your first priority in life. And so nominal Christianity, Christianity name only, says, I want to have the name Christian, I want to be known as a Christian, but yet I'm not living my life as a Christian here. And that's what he's saying to Sardis. He says, listen, you have a reputation for being alive. You have the name of being alive, but in reality, you're dead. And so this is what he says here. He says, wake up, understand the, 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 the reality of the situation, regain your consciousness. So like, a, like the fig tree that Jesus talked about, they had leaves but no fruit. Sardis was a place of, of, of reputation but no real life. And later on, he's going to talk about this idea of soiled garments. Now, what, what does he talk about there? Well, this wasn't important to the city of Sardis because remember, I told you earlier that they claimed to be the ones that were the ones that first figured out how to dye wool. Uh, the, the garment industry, textile industry, was so important in the city of Sardis. And uh, there are some ancient inscriptions in Asia Minor here that indicate that many temples barred worshipers. And I'm talking about not, not, not Jewish temples, I'm talking about just, just temples in general uh, of, of whatever gods were in the land. They barred worshipers from entering with what they called soiled garments or dirty clothes because that would insult deity there. Uh, Later on, this is going to kind of become known for people who uh, are, are contaminated spiritually. Jude 23 talks about spiritual contamination of people that are corrupted by false teachers. Um, I think it's the idea of that these, he's saying that how you're living your life, you're living in this, in this area that, that puts a, a great emphasis on clothing and how you look, and, and, and you're walking around with the biggest stains of all. I, I hate to say this and give this illustration because I know, I know it's going to be just bring up lots of bad memories for some of you here, but, but snow is coming, okay? All right? Winter's coming, right? Okay? Now, what happens, in, let's say in the middle of, uh, you know, towards the end of January, February, when we've got, you know, it feels like 12 feet of snow piled up around and, and you're driving your car and things like this and you're, you're about ready to get into your car uh, at the grocery store or whatever it is and you brush up against your car, right? And you look down, what do you see? Just 
salt, right? <laughs> okay, you just see, because no one washes their car in the winter here, because one, it's pointless, number one, and number two, you'll probably freeze your locks, and that's not good either. So we just all drive around with terrible-looking cars for most of the year because of where we live, right? And plus, most, many of us are lazy too, but that's beside the point. Uh, we don't want to wash our cars. But the point is you, walk, you rush up against your car and you get, you get, your, you get the salt and, and things all over you, right? I think this is similar to what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're brushing up against culture so much that everything that they stand for is, is on you now. He says that, that there are some of you that haven't had these soiled clothes, but he says that in the main, this is how you are. And so this is what he's referring to with that. And so he's saying, wake up to this. Look down and look and see what's going on here. Understand the reality of this. A couple of passages came to mind. Matthew 23. Uh, Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs and outward appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He talked about to the Pharisees with this and said, listen, he says, you, you think you're alive and, and you're going through the motions and, and, and you have all the religious stuff down and, and you have the right words and, and, and you know when to pray and when to stand and when to sit. And you know about all these things. He says, but inside, inside you're dead. I don't think Jesus said that with any joy at all in his soul. I don't think when Jesus wrote this letter to Sardis, he had any joy at all. It's very serious, actually. It's very serious of what he's saying, and I wonder how it applies to us. I wonder how many of us are going through the motions. I wonder how many of us are, are, have the reputation of being alive and have things together. But inside, Jesus says, I see my authority gives me vision right to your soul. You may fool everybody else, but I see that you are dead. But just like Conan Doyle can bring life to homes again, Jesus can bring life to your soul. And that's my prayer. Another verse that came to my mind was Matthew 15 when Jesus says, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. I can't tell you how many times I've thought through that when I'm singing songs. I'm singing a worship song down here and, and I'm, I'm saying a phrase or something like that. And this verse will come through my mind. I say, okay, Lord, I'm saying this with my lips. May my heart truly mean this. May you move my heart. And I'm not talking about necessarily just an emotion. I'm talking about this, this my disposition of my heart. May I truly believe. And sometimes I'll ask myself, do I really believe this? There's times where I'll stop singing during a song and listen to you all sing. And I will pray, Father, please may this be true of my soul. Father, please may this be true of every one of us who are saying these words right now. Because I know it is so possible, it is so easy for all of us to be saying things with our lips. But our heart is far, far from it. And may God just use this letter to Sardis here to remind us, to wake us up and say, wait a minute here, I got, I got to take stock of where I am. I got, I got to see the reality of the situation here. So wake up. But then there's another thing he says. He says, I want you to strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, on one level, that's kind of discouraging. But on another level, it's encouraging. And the level that's discouraging, it says, is basically even what you have that has a little life, it's about ready to die, just so you know. It's like that plant that you have. And, and you're trying so hard to water it and put it near sunlight and stuff like this. And I suppose that's what you do with plants because, I don't know, I don't deal with plants. But uh, from what I'm told, that's what you do. Cindy, is that what you do? Okay. 
Nick. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, and so you put these things over there, and, then, and you're hoping for them to grow, but uh, over time, uh, they don't, or they die. But, or maybe there's some that it's just there. You're, you're trying to give it life. He, here's what Jesus is saying. Says, there's, some, there's some that's still in the church here. But, I mean, if, if, if radical intervention isn't taken, it doesn't take place immediately, they're going to die. So take effort. Strengthen what remains in you. And again, interpreters differ on what he means here. Of, this could mean the people in the church. This could mean the doctrinal positions of the church. And in all reality, it doesn't really matter. What, what he's saying is that whatever is, is, is in the church that has life, fortify it, strengthen it. You know, this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, we, we have to stick with the church, right? I mean, it's so easy just to, to bail if we don't like something about the church. But I think one of the things that that could even just hasten to death. Now, to be sure, some churches need to die. I get it. But I believe that if we are part of a church, we should do everything we can in our power to strengthen this, whatever church we're part of. And so here, we're part of this church here. Do your part to strengthen this church. So you got to ask yourself, okay, Jesus is looking at you and saying, wake up. He's looking at me saying, wake up. He's looking at you and me and saying, okay, strengthen what is here. So we got to ask ourselves, are we doing our part to strengthen what is here in our church? It's kind of like that there's glowing embers in the fire and Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to fan those things back into flame. I want you to breathe life back into them. Get it back into a flame before it's too late. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize the things that we do here at our church. Now, we don't do it perfectly, okay? So I'm giving these illustrations here. Please don't take that as I think that we're just totally hitting it because we've got so many areas that we need to grow in. But this, is, uh, this gives you a little bit of the insight in some of the philosophy of ministry here, though. Um, this is why we emphasize all the one and others. There was a sermon series over the summer about all the one and others. This is the reason why we emphasize that. Because this is strengthening the church here. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize small groups, right? Is because, you know, coming in on Sunday morning, being here for an hour or two or something like that, and then taking off, uh, one, you're not going to have a whole lot of time to talk before and after, and then... Uh, um, and you're not going to really develop a lot of relationships that way. I mean, you can over time, and it's, it's wonderful. But, I mean, really, if you're going to develop relationships with people, the strength of one another, it's through something like small groups. And maybe it just doesn't work out for whatever reason. What about hospitality? This is the reason why we encourage people to get together. This is the reason why we encourage people to write notes to each other, to text. That was some of the application that I made last Sunday was text, call, send cards, interact with one another. This is the reason why we emphasize adult discipleship hour in Sunday school. And let me just say, please, please prioritize that. I mean, this is, this is an, a wonderful opportunity, and we're looking at doing some different things in January, but we're starting a new series next week on Proverbs here for adult discipleship hour. Let me encourage you to be part of that. And let me encourage you to bring your kids. You, you need, your parents, you need to have other adults, Christian adults, speaking truth into the lives of your children, okay? It, 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 you need that reinforcement. You need different voices. They need to hear different voices. And here, we have people. We have people people that are, are sacrificing their time and studying and preparing every week so they can teach your kids. Let me encourage you, take advantage of that. It's free, right? Okay? It doesn't cost you anything. Maybe you just have to get up a little bit earlier, uh, but, that, but, but please, it's worth it. And let me just say this on a side note. It's not my notes. I'm just saying this on a side note. This is going to sound, uh, I, 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 this is just me being, you know, Pastor Jeremy loving on his family, but I got to say this. Try to be on time. 
Okay, all right, okay. As much as you can, try to be on time. We get it. It's tough sometimes, particularly with young kids. I get it. But if you could be on time, just, just understand what that does for your teachers, the kids' teachers, okay? I mean, we have some that, I mean, it's, it, it's pretty late when they're getting in. Their teachers are trying to recover from that. So just, just out of respect, try to get there on time, okay? All right? I know every teacher here is, I mean, we're not a church that's very emotive, right, okay? We don't have a lot of hand raising. We don't have a lot of screaming and shouting and things like that and amens in the sermon and stuff like this. But I know that there are teachers that are internally right now saying amen to this, okay? All right, okay, all right. Um, but please, please work on prioritizing. This is the reason why we prioritize it because we're trying to strengthen what remains here. And this is, this is a goal of ours to do that. This is the reason why we have a Bible reading program. And not that everyone has to do that program, but we're trying to find ways to encourage encourage people to be reading their Bible. So if you don't do the church program, fine, no worries. But read your Bibles, okay? Do something. We're just trying to make sure that you don't have an excuse of, well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. This is the reason why we do these things. This is why we say to get to know your neighbors. This is why we say to get to know your coworkers. This is the reason why we emphasize all these things. It's because we're saying this is what's going to strengthen what remains in us and fan it into flame. I don't know if you've noticed what we don't have. We don't have tons of programs here. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with programs. Nothing wrong with them at all. And we're not against them. But we want to emphasize what we feel would be the best thing that would strengthen you and breathe life into your soul rather than just fill up another night in the calendar. Because sometimes a busy schedule can give a false sense of, of life and vitality. And again, that's not saying we're not going to add any more programs or not do anything. No, that's not the point. But the point is we're trying to be very careful with what we emphasize here and how it's going to breathe life and strengthen what remains into us. And so we'd much rather you spend Thursday nights or, or you know, Tuesday nights, whatever it is, getting to know your neighbors, sharing the gospel with them, having people over, getting together with other people, being involved in a small group. Those are things that we think will be best to strengthen you and strengthen our church. So the question is, how are you strengthening the church? That's the question you got to ask yourself. That's the question I ask myself all the time. How am I strengthening this church? Jesus says, strengthen. He says, he says wake up, strength remains in you. Let me move on. He's got a couple of things that he has to say for us. He says, I want you to remember what you've seen and heard. You see that in the text there in verse 3? Remember what you've seen and heard. And so he says, go back and remember the power of the gospel that once captivated your soul. He says, go back and remember how the, at one point it was like this was the only thing you could think of. I want you to remember that. I want you to go back and, and, and see the beauty of Christ anew again. See the beauty of the gospel. I want you to go back and remember how sin really, really bothered you. And it just made you feel terrible. But then you saw the hope of Jesus and, and, and you saw his forgiveness. I want you to go back and remember that. I want you to go back and remember that. Remember when sin didn't have a hold on you because of the nearness of Jesus. Guess what? Jesus didn't move, okay? And so he says, go back and remember that. This idea of what you heard there has the idea of something that you embraced at one time. In both these terms, seen and heard, talk about over a long period of time. And, and most of you have been involved in a church for a long period of time now. Go back and remember what you have seen and heard, what you embraced. He says, this will strengthen us. This will be the solution to breathing life back into a church that is with a great reputation, but actually dead inside. 
Then he says, it's not just important to remember what you've seen and heard. He says, I want you to keep it. Don't just remember with fondness, fondness your theological heritage, he says. He says, embrace it, keep it, pass it on. And so you're going back to the Sunday school thing in, in adult discipleship hour, you have people that are trying to help you pass on a theological heritage from one generation to the next. Because guess what? Every church, our church is included, is one generation away from extinction. And so we're trying to pass it on. How are you helping with that? Are you praying for the teachers? When you drive the church, can I just say, ask you, this is a very simple thing you can do. While you're driving the church, take time as a family. Pray for the teachers. Pray for all the teachers that are teaching that day. Sunday school, children's church, me or whoever's preaching that Sunday, whoever it is. That's a way that you can show that you want to keep what is being given to us. And then instead of just remembering everything that you once believed, keep it. Keep what you've believed. I don't have time to, to keep going uh, uh, on in that, but I think it's fairly self-explanatory. So remember what you've seen and heard, but then embrace it once again. Keep it. Live it out. Make it so that that is your first priority. And then he ends with this. He says, repent. In some ways, it's surprising. You would think that he would start by saying, repent, and then do these other things. But I think that it's instructive because sometimes it's not until we've remembered It's not until we've woken up. It's not until we've taken stock of what is around us that we're actually motivated and moved to repent. And so here we're told to ask God to forgive us of our sins. We cannot underestimate the power of repentance because it's an expression of humility and God says he gives grace to the humble. So let me just encourage this. If we're going to follow the solution that Jesus has for even the worst of circumstances, we need, to, we need to follow Jesus' plan here. And he gives us five steps here to do this. He says, I, I want you to wake up. I want you to strengthen what remains within you. I want you to remember. I want you to keep it. And I want you to repent. So which of these do we need to do? Which of these do you need to take time today and say, this is what I need to work on? There's two other points quickly as we wrap this up. So we said that if we're going to follow Jesus' solution, we need to accept his authority, we need to follow his plan, but we also need to fear Jesus' judgment. We don't like talking about this. We love talking about Jesus who loves us. We enjoy talking about Jesus who wants to embrace us and, and, and all that, and that is so important. But look what he talks about here. He says, um, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name in the book of life. But before that, he says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'll come against you. And so he says, judgment is coming. He says, if you don't, don't change, there will be judgment that's coming. Now, some people have taken the whole thing, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just in case people are wondering, I'll mention this. The, the idea of blotting out a name from the book of life, they said, does that mean that you can be saved, and then, then if you don't uh, uh, you know, obey, uh, then, then he'll blot your name out? You just got to look carefully at what he says there. It's not a threat. It's a promise. It's a promise that he's saying that no matter what happens, if someone truly is a believer, their name will not be blotted out. It is really what it is. And if you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you a little bit more. But I just wanted to point out that that's not a, a threat of saying, okay, if you disobey, you once were a believer, now I'm going to blot you out of the, name, the book of life. It, that's not consistent with all of Scripture. 
And what he is saying there, he's actually giving assurance to the one who conquers. He says, you may be part of a dead church. You may be part in a very pluralistic society. You may be dealing with that all the time. But just understand, if you stay faithful to me, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. It doesn't matter what everyone else is around you happening. You're going to be okay. I will save you. That's what he's talking about there. But we do need to fear Jesus' judgment. Um, we, we, should, we don't make the mistake that Jesus will not judge us. Now, again, if we're truly believers, we don't have to worry about the dangers of hell. But the question we need to ask ourselves is if we're truly believers at times. We need to ask ourselves, I mean, the Bible says, Paul wrote to Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He wrote that to a church. And so it's possible for people to be part of a church and not be true believers in Christ. And this is what he's warning us against. He said, listen, you need to wake up to the reality of where you're at. What is your priority? How do you live your life? Do I factor in this at all? Are you following me? Or is this in name only? Do you want the benefits of Christianity? Or do you, but not, not everything that goes along with it. So he says, please, please repent of this. Otherwise, some of you, this, doesn't this remind you of the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount starts with who's going to be in the kingdom how does it end? He says, many are going to say to me that on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And I'm going to say to you, do you depart from me, you work of iniquity? I never knew you. See, it's possibly very involved. It's possible to, to be very busy. It's possible to have all the reputation and the right words to say, but not be a true believer in Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, you have a reputation, but you're dead. So please strengthen what is in you. Repent, fear Jesus' judgment. But then we need to end on the positive note because Jesus does. We hope in Jesus' promises. We hope in his promises. I, already, I told you a little bit about this. Uh, I won't talk about the book of life again, but he says that we clothed in white garments. Notice that's passive, that we will be clothed in white garments. It's the idea of righteousness there. And of course, this is Jesus' righteousness that's going to be passed on to us. Uh, because of our belief in him, if we truly believe it. Notice that our name is going to be secure. He says that the name will not be blotted out, and he will confess his name before the Father. That, that Jesus will, will, before the Father, will be presented as righteous before the Father. That's the summary of the promise here that he talks about here in these last couple of verses, is that I will present you as righteous before the Father. So in other words, if you're truly a believer in Christ, your name is safe with God, with Jesus, because he will confess it. Remember the old uh, uh, TV show, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm not promoting the show, of course, when I say this. I haven't really watched it a whole lot, but the Cheers, the, the old show Cheers. Uh, remember the theme song on that? Um, you know, uh, some of you are singing it right now in your heads, you know. But it goes, you want to be where everyone knows your name, Right? Yeah, you know, that's like, so this was like, you, they would go to the neighborhood bar and they would, they would be a place where they, everyone knew your name was the premise of the show, apparently. And so the song is very catchy. The tune is very, it's got one of those, it'll stick in your head for a while. You want to be where everyone knows your name. Well, I'll tell you what, the only place where, that you really need to be concerned about where your name is known is with Jesus. When he says, I will confess your name before the Father. And so if we follow his solution, if we say, and maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're like, you know what, I am not where I need to be spiritually. I mean, I'm not even close. Let me just tell you to go back to this and say, hey, God's given you a solution here. Repent. Ask him to forgive you. Strengthen what remains, uh, what is there, and, and follow him. 
okay? Maybe some of you are saying that, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if I can. Well, the point is, is that it's Jesus' righteousness. We've got to depend on him for this. Let me close with this illustration. I read this, uh, John MacArthur, actually, in one of his books, he gave this illustration, so I want to give credit to him. He said this. He said, a light year is the distance light is able to travel, moving at more than 186,000 miles per second in a year. Um, the distance works out to more than six, it says in a year, the distance works out to more than six trillion miles. So as we look up into the sky at night and gaze at the stars, we're not seeing the light they're currently producing. We're seeing light from five, 10, or even 20 years ago. In fact, we could be looking at a light from decades in the past, even from stars that long ago burned out. It could be years or even decades more before we realized that the light had gone out. I pray that's not our church. I pray that it's not us where there's a reputation. We've been here since 1855, but yet we're dead. I don't think that's the case, but I think it could be true of some of us. And so may God use his word to draw us to him.